Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Dagan, I don't even, I don't have any more nicknames for you with Game of Thrones. We've been doing this for so long, I don't even know where to go at this point. I, I feel like I live in this world. And so why would I name you something? We're, we're just characters here. It's been quite a journey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How, How about Dagan bend the knee? Moriarty. Oh my God. I hate that. I go. I yes. don't think I actually, oh, did I say it in, in how much I hate that term? You okay, did. Good. We, we went over it briefly. It, it wasn't, I know. hate it. <laughs> as far as I can tell, cause I've only read the, I'm on the second book now. In the first book, they use that term twice. Oh, they do use so it in the book. So though. it is there, but oh. uh, it might be more, but that's what I remember. So seeing, it is but, a George uh, Martin thing. Yes. I was curious definitely. about that. I'm glad we established that. Well, you know that. that it's one of those things where they heard it in the writer's room. And then there was like, let's just continuously say this. <laughs> I would love to see the Google search term. You know, I love looking at that, like when Google search terms and like usage of words yeah. and all of this. It's yeah, really yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. I bet you it spikes like crazy. Oh, it's got to. In 2016. Yeah, they, they drilled it right into the ground. Yeah. They People really in my did. life were saying it in like different contexts. I'm like, shut up. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I'm kind of kind of uppity right kinda now. Kind of salty Jeez. already to start yeah, the show. All right. Well, didn't didn't necessarily anticipate that, but. Dagan, how is your life? How's everything going in your world, my friend? Everything's good. I was thinking about you and I had briefly touched on uh, too many games, the retro gaming convention out here in the greater Philadelphia area took place last weekend and I got to see Dustin of uh, Last Stand Media fame and our friend Ben, our friend Dustin and our friend Ben and others. Some some fans of the shows came out for a little meet and greet. It was a good time. But I was just thinking about the state of retro game collecting in general, specifically mm. NES game collecting, which I kind of fall in and out of. You know, I ebb and flow with it, peaks and valleys. But I've been into it again lately. And I'll tell you what the sort of what kind of stimulated it this time around was I ran into this game randomly on eBay called Starship Hector, a Hudson Soft game. Oh, I actually have it here. Okay. NES game. And that's the cool thing about collecting for NES specifically. There's 715, 716 licensed games, a lot of titles. So sometimes, even though you think, all right, I think I know of everything. I don't own everything, but I think I know of everything. A game will pop up and you're like, wow, that game... It's never been on my radar. So I saw it and it had this cool box art with this 870s slash 80s anime, sort of this Tetsuo Hara, Kenshiro, Fist of the North Star style artwork. So I was in. And then I, you know, I did a little bit of a YouTube search and saw some Let's Plays. It's, it's a space shoot 'em up like Gradius, Life Force, mm. Xanax, so on. So I get the game and I never like to just get a game and put it on my shelf. Let me try it out. I'm feeling nostalgic at night glow of the tv right popping into the nes dude <laughs> this game is fucking impossible how have i never heard of this game this game should be renowned just for its difficulty let me look nothing else. what is it called it's called starship hector and it's a hudson soft game as well yeah, so i, I thought feel like i would have known about maybe this some quality yeah. you think you would know of it right hudson b but dude this game there's I've, no I've way I'm getting off the first level. There's just no way. And you know what else? For those of you who are familiar with old NES and SNES era 8 and 16-bit shooters, a cool thing about this one is that you have a life bar. It's not just one or two hits to be destroyed. Still, absolutely impossible. Yeah, it's. I know Star Soldier because I'm reading now. That's it's a sequel to that. I know that game. Oh, it's a see. And, I didn't even know that. And um, it looks awesome. I'm really watching really it now. Not yeah, there's that a little bad. health bar. It's like a Castlevania style health bar on the bottom. Yeah. left corner with the little. This looks great. Which is kind of novel yeah, I, I for a spaceship, right? Yeah, to have I've never life seen bar. this game. And you would think, oh, it's probably pretty forgiving. Maybe I maybe I could ratchet it up to a different difficulty level once I get good enough. No, you're jumping right into this thing. And so it's just like those NES feels just keep coming. You hear of games you never heard of before. You could still purchase them. Pretty reasonable price. Pop it in, play it. And, you know, it just got me thinking like back in this era. You just don't know if the difficulty was intentional or if these guys were still just learning to develop or maybe a little bit of both, you know, whereas did they intentionally make it this hard? Because let's face it, once they get your 50, 60 bills right at the store, 
it doesn't really matter. They got you. You already bought it. It's, it's home. Mm. You know, the only caveat to that was the rental bit, right? You could rent a game, try it out for three bucks, have it for a couple of nights. But yeah, dude, I, it would just, it kind of, it kind of rekindled all those NES feelings, good and bad. So I thought it was kind of interesting. I thought it was really funny. And now I'm looking kind of for the next fix. It's like, what other NES games did I either forget about or possibly never even heard about? Like this one, somehow it just escaped me completely that I could kind of investigate. Is there something cool about discovering something that's 30, 35 years old, you know? So now it's got me down on this, you know, because I, I meander. I go from NES, SNES. I like to j- collect for the Japanese retro consoles, maybe TurboGrafx-16. I, I kind of come in and out of that. I get excited for different things. Maybe if get a contemporary game, now that we're seeing so much of the Cuphead DLC, I'm getting excited for that, for instance. But yeah, it's out. It's, it's out, out now, right? Yeah. So, oh man, I don't know if I'm ready. Yeah, to go I was looking down at some videos. Hole. There's some cool ass new enemies. Oh, in, dude, uh, in... it's so beautiful. Oh, that's I don't a know conversation. What took them so long? But uh, it took a long time. Too long. I think. I think it hurt, it's going to hurt them. That it took I too watched long, them I, announce I that in 2018. Yeah, I don't know what happened because they were always a remote studio, I think. So I don't know that you can really blame the scenario over the last two years on that. I, I think they just wanted to get it right. But I, I think that that's, that's a bit of a mistake on their part. But I'm looking at the uh, Starship Hector ending, by the way. Oh, no. It's just, it's just one screen and it <sighs> says, be praised with your courage and so on. The earth <laughs> is saved. <laughs> and then it says, you go on the long voyage. Good luck. And that's the end. <laughs> That's the ending. You good love shit. a good any when we were rarely those rare times we were treated to a good NES ending. But now I feel like those sort of English, you know, one screen, really not uh, typical, not not a, an acceptable payoff for the the brutality. I feel like that's kind of part of the journey now. Something you look forward to. It's like, wow, how bad is this going to be? And by the way, the programmer of the game is called Hect is named Hector Oyama so Starship oh. Hector named We're after he- Hudson here. Soft Hector look at you H- Hudson my Soft Hector I yeah, hope he's still out uh, there be praised with your courage and so on <laughs> and so on <laughs> good writing brilliant All right. there was, there's um, no error to report. now what about you my friend I've gone on long hmm. enough what's going on with oh. you what's going on in your world not much um I've really just been reconnecting with Wild Arms the last uh, little while. Talk about retro games. One of our favorite games and uh, PS1 1997 Western Japanese release uh, from Media Vision, the developer, and uh, Sony published second party game. And I don't know, man. It's just so good. It's it so really, good. really, really is. It's so charming and so good. It's a turn-based role-playing game, heavily inspired. You can tell by Final Fantasy VI and a few others. They have like a rune system instead of like an esper system where you can summon monsters and you uh yeah my favorite part is the crest i don't know if you remember crest glyphs like where you take the the you like make your own oh, spells i forgot about that you like go into this like uh xy axis thing and you match them up and you try to like create spells and you name them and so cool but what i love about it and what i've said i love about it the most is that it's just three characters and Though I love the ensemble role-playing games a la Final Fantasy 4 and especially Final Fantasy 6 where there's just an extensive I mean it's just like the la- I don't want to can I spoil the last fight in Final Fantasy 6 it's been 30 years you fight <laughs> in, right. in Final Fantasy 6's last fight your whole party fights against Kefka 
like in phases. So good. Like it, it's so cool. It's so it all comes together. And of course, your ensemble of characters in that game is depending on who you save after the world ends, which right. is uh, you've had 30 years. It's time for you to play Final Fantasy. <laughs> Get in there already. It's even older than Wild Arms, but Wild Arms. I really love how they're just like, you know, what, just three characters, because there is this push and pull. I don't know what the perfect party is. I think our game that we're working on has eight playable characters, might be seven with four with four at a time. That's a nice amount in your party. Yeah. And I think it's like so it reminds me a little bit of Tales of Destiny, where you can kind of have like one full party out, one full party in and then swap them in. That's like enough characters. Yeah. But there's something really special about saying, no, 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 no. Like you're not even going to have a general Leo type or a Bannon type join your party randomly and then leave. It's literally just going to be these three characters the entire time. Yeah. And you really get to know them. And I, w- I must say the writing's a little weird because it's very fast, but the translation and localization is really solid. I'd be interested to know who did that. And I haven't played the game since college at all. I wrote a that was like one of my last FAQs at GameFAQs. Oh, and wow. I don't think I ever even finished it. Holy shit. But but um. I really, really love Wild Arms and, and people have been messaging me because it, it's obviously relevant right now because PlayStation Plus has two new tier tiers. Now it's a three tier system. PlayStation Plus for time immemorial, one of our favorite uh, sayings <laughs> Thanks, was Tim. just a one tier thing. But then they, in, in June, they split it into three parts and I'm at the lower part, which is just like cloud saving and like a couple free games a month. I don't care about any of that other okay. shit. I really just want cloud saving. That's right. all I want. Right. Also known as clown saving. <laughs> and and uh, then there are higher tiers that give you access to PS3 and PS4 games. And then a higher tier that gives you access to PS1 and PS2 games ported and PSP games, which is really interesting. That's huge. And Wild Arms is one of those games. And Wild Arms is one of the games that has trophies. So people are really going in and playing it for the first time and finally taking my advice and playing it. And so that's why it's relevant to talk about this old media vision role playing game. And we actually just did on Sacred Symbols, an episode where we talked a great deal about is Sony courting Square Enix, because it really does seem like Sony is going, maybe going to buy Square Enix. I I don't know that that's necessarily true or not, but you have to think about like their AAA games or PlayStation exclusives, Final Fantasy 16, Final Fantasy 7 Remake 2, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, And, you know, Dragon Quest 11, or no, is it Dragon Quest 12 now? is a PS5 game and so on and so forth. Some of them coming to other consoles, Nintendo obviously getting supported and getting their own exclusives as well. So it's a little muddied, a little nebulous. But what came up to me, and I'm just going on and on, but what came up to me is that you don't need to buy them because they sh- you shouldn't want to buy them anyway. I think it's weird. I, I hate this like this conglomeration shit going on. Yeah. Everyone's combining Could with be each dangerous. other. But Sony owns great role-playing game IP. Why don't you just revive them? You own Wild Arms, you own Legend of Lagaya, you own Legend of Dragoon, you own Dark Cloud, you own Re- Rogue oh, Galaxy, you own one. all of this shit. Sure. You don't need to buy them, you know? Sure. So I'm hoping that the exposure with PS1 and PS2, but especially the PS1 games that are going to be coming in hopefully the months and years to come, Breath of Fire 3, Final Fantasy Tactics, you know, Vagrant Story, uh, Xenogears, Brave Fencer <sighs> Musashi, as these games start to come out, I think there's going to be a, a look of being like, oh, we should really be... Um, making one of these and star ocean is coming is coming back this fall even so wow i didn't know that so it's 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 just really it's time you know saga frontier has gotten republished which i i don't like those games but saiken densetsu and the mana oh, games and man. there's just a lot and i know square enix owns those 
a lot of them, but sure. you don't need to own them. Dude, everyone loves Dark Cloud. Remember Dark Cloud? Of on course. PS2? People loved that game. That's a classic. People, people have been asking for Legend of Dragoon, which they were going to do a sequel, but they've been asking for it. Shuhei Yoshida produced that game. They've been asking for 20 years. You, know, <laughs> you have your own shit. So in playing Wild Arms, we look at PS1 as this, this what I, I anyway, I look at it as this, this console with an amazing JRPG heritage. Yeah. I think it absolutely squashes SNES. I, I, I love SNES and I love the RPGs on there, but we're talking about eight or ten. Yeah. On, of, and we're talking on PS1 like 25 or yeah, 30. Probably triple that. Like amount. really yep. excellent. Yeah. Including Wild Arms, a sequel. Yeah. So it just got in my mind like, man, I hope Sony goes back to the well one they're, they're made fun of you know they call them like dad simulators and shit right we have our sad dad and we have our child and we have and, and i totally get it and obviously they're dominant in third person storytelling games no one touches them with those games yes but there are other games and it's maybe time for you to go back and explore those remember they used to make the getaway which was an awesome grand theft auto like game they used to make colony wars which was a space shooter they they made games like tokyo jungle that were about like animals yeah. in, in a post-apocalypse they, they made all this shit and now it really is just like oh the last of us and god of war and horizon and i love those games but come on let's get into the nitty-gritty again absolutely but, give us and some i'm more. pretty sure media vision still exists so let's get that wild does arms it going. i was gonna ask you about that are they defunct i'm pretty they sure still... i mean wild arms so um i'm looking it up now but wild arms got a remake on psp which i remember it was called yeah wild arms xf which i actually never played okay the last game they, yeah, they're still around. They made Valkyria Chronicles 4 for Sega. Oh, shit. In, which is a strategy role-playing game in 2018. That was the last game they made. Okay, not too long ago. We haven't heard from them since, but they, they did Wild Arms and Chaos Rings, which was a, I don't know if people know that game, but that's a mega early iOS role-playing game hit. Yeah, and they know. were responsible for those as well. Okay. So they made they made good money, and I think they're still around. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm like looking at the games they... Uh, they made because wasn't yeah crime crackers that was their first game but we never got it here it was a japanese launch game for ps1 for ps1 okay yeah and then they did rapid reload which did come out here and yes yes no it was a european release gunner's heaven this was kind of a prelude stylistically to wild arms it's actually really interesting to look at the cover because oh, it looks cool. like rudy and cecilia with guns but oh shit i'm, gonna anyway, look that up. I'm talking about nothing right now okay but I like that. I like what you're saying. Introduce these to new new players, possibly younger players, people that miss them on the PlayStation. And yeah, it's going to the domino effect will be it could cultivate interest and then, you know, hence put out new games, continue a franchise, build off a franchise, create something new, something in that there's model. Just, yeah, that's there's a just special so much game. magical. The, wild it's arms. funny, man, because I often talk about G.I. Joe, like how I would fund a G.I. Joe game myself and I would. Um, and maybe one day we will try to do that. That would be amazing. Oh, can you I imagine? Would my, I would shit myself if I ever got permission to do that. God, I would, it would be, be so sick. I don't even know what I would do with myself. Talk about that fan point. service. But uh, Wild Arms is one of those games, too. It's like, man, give me, I don't know, $20 million and 30 people and three years. I'll make a Wild Arms game. Three years, you think? Yeah. Yeah. I think you can do it I three like years. It. Yeah. I like your courage. Final Fantasy Four was made in like eight months or something like that. That's insane yeah. to think about. That's nuts. I don't even know how that was possible. I don't even know. How, I literally have no idea how that's even possible. That's but they too did. Crazy. They did make it that quick. Wow. You can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. 
connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good and then a bang in the night and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home and I can tell you, I know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. All right, my friend. Let's not talk about good things anymore. Let's talk about bad things. <laughs> uh, Game of Thrones season eight. This is our final Game of Thrones conversation. Can you imagine? And we've gone on and on and on. It'll probably be about 20 hours all told of Game of Thrones content for you guys. So yeah. we spent the last three months really going back through this show. I've enjoyed the process a great deal. We've already picked out our next show that we're going to do. Should we tell them? No, let's not tell them. No, let's make a surprise. And we're going to start doing another show in, in August. I think some of you will be pleased. I'm actually kind of low-key excited about it. I think it's going to be fun. Have I you seen, without too. without uh, letting the cat out of the bag, have you wa- you've watched the show? Yes. And I haven't. So it's going to be super fun. Yes. Um, I think you're going to love it. At least the, the beginning. But we'll see. But we've dedicated a lot of time in interstitial weeks, basically, to get through Game of Thrones. And I've enjoyed Like I said, I've enjoyed the process. It's been a little annoying because I've, I've like this week, I'm like, I really want to play Wild Arms, but I have to sit down and watch movie length <laughs> episodes of Game of Thrones instead. And that's fine. You know, there are bigger problems to have. But I'm curious before we even get into anything the audience says, before I say anything about how I feel about this season, I'm curious, what do you what do you think of this last season? What do you think about being done? What, how has the experience been? And. Talk to me in any way you choose. I'm so proud of our epic journey coming all this way, journeying this far, seasons one through eight. And, you know, don't forget, I know I talked to you guys about this earlier in our conversations in the earlier seasons, but I only went through Game of Thrones Game of Thrones, my first time around in February, mid-February 2020 is when I started. And I got through it in a week because I was bedridden with a really bad sinus infection. So that's basically all I did was just binged Game of Thrones in this five, six, seven days, however long it took me. 
but I had only seen season eight once all the way through. Now I had started the show a couple of times and we got through the first two, three, four seasons and did that and then watched it again, of course, for our conversations. But eight was a surprise to me. And by the time I started watching eight initially in 2020, it was already, there was already so much talk done to death about how bad episode eight was. So I went in with a real, you know, unlike the other seasons, I went in with this kind of a bias with that chip on your shoulder saying, oh no, like what did they do? I have to tell you, man, I don't think this series, this season gets bad until midway through the last episode. I went in with a whole new set of eyes, Mm -hmm. a brand new fresh set of goggles and just looked at it as objectively as I could. And I'll tell you, I really, really ended up enjoying the ride. Now, there's problems. And we really hit the problems. We really got to pump the brakes at the at the, the middle of episode six. But I have to say, I have to kind of develop my posture early on. I think for the most part, I enjoyed the ride of this season. And I don't know what I was misremembering and I don't know what the, you know, I know what a lot of the the problems are. I know what the things that a lot of the people complain about and a lot of the fans kind of, you know, come away heartbroken after the end of the show. But I got to tell you, I think, you know, it it moves at that breathless pace. It's unrelenting. It just moves quickly. But I kind of really, I kind of really dug it and we'll get into the nitty gritty but what about you? What's your mile high perspective on 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 the season going in? It's hard because I think, first of all, I agree with you. What's there is pretty good. And I kind of always felt that way. I know some people don't feel that way. I'm like, this is fine. I mean, but it feels to me, and I, I wrote this. I want to make sure I'm getting this right in my notes. Yeah, I wrote down that it feels to me like the last season is like watching a spoiler reel. It just goes from plot point to plot point as it accelerates and accelerates and accelerates and it's a compliment to the show because you don't want it to go that fast you see all of this stuff happening it's not really fair to call it six episodes because they're so long that it's more it really does come out to more like eight episodes like kind of an equivalent length of the previous season it's just that when a story like this collapses on itself and you want you want it to be resolved in some in some way you can't begin the resolution in the last season and then do it all in six episodes. It just seems, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's like, I don't want to say it's disrespectful to the source material because the source material doesn't exist anymore at, at this point. Right. It just seems like it goes back to what I was saying, I think in the last episode day, which is why did HBO allow this to happen? I don't, I agree with you. It's fine. But when you look at it, it could have been so much more. I don't know that anyone, I mean, maybe you would feel different, but does anyone claim that these last few seasons are anywhere as good as the beginning of the show, the first few seasons? No way. No. Not even close. I mean, who would possibly make that claim? It's not even close. I won't argue with that. And that, I think, so it's like saying, it's like how we would feel about if Mad Men didn't end as strong as it did. It's like, well, what the fuck was the point of this? I mean, the journey is is fun, but that's so unsatisfying. But imagine if they ended Mad Men badly and then they did it in like three episodes instead of really having an intentional like end to the show, which they did. It seems like they got their bullet points in their notes. They have their slate of characters. Many of them live. There aren't that many deaths in no. the end of the, at the end of the no, show. No, there really isn't. And they, you know, they kind of put everything together. But 
it felt to me like six episodes done that should have been 25. And that's it's a so it's a compliment because we didn't want at least I can only speak for me. I didn't want it to end that way where it was just like it was like craziness. I, I think the one. I think the one thing that shows how crazy the last season is, is in terms of its pace is just the shit with Varys. Like, before you know it. I remember Varys being like, he's in his room, and I'm like, what is even, what is happening? I don't even <laughs> really understand this. It's just so quick. Very quick. It's just so fucking quick. And, like, an entire season, and I was saying this to Michael when we were watching it, I'm like, you could have dedicated and should have dedicated an entire season to the Night Walkers assaulting. Westeros. That should have been that one season. Absolutely. Of the show. Oh, you could have got at least three episodes out of that. As, four episodes. As it breaks through the various, you know, lines and all sure. the different battles and all the different and also very curious what's happening in the rest of the world. It would have been a real nice taste to be able to kind of like there are there's normal shit going on in the rest of the world. Like they're not dealing with these problems at all. And I'll also say this. This is probably my biggest problem, and I'm sure it's in the book and or will be in the books if it's not. They never explain what winter is. Like they never even indicate what it means like what did it mean when a winter used to come how is this winter any different other than the night king it's already out of winter you were talking about winters lasting for years and years but right. at the end when they're going beyond the wall there's a sprout coming up uh, you know indicating that the the snows are thawing i just to me it's just not satisfying it feels like what i said last time which is just vignettes and it felt like reading a spoiler log on reddit that's like what this this episode felt like it's like yeah Jamie gets with Cersei and they they he kind of goes back and, and yeah, it's like, OK, so that was like a bullet point. And then, yeah, the mountain fights, uh, you know, the, uh, the hound. OK, that's a bullet point. And, <laughs> They're you know, checking and, them but, off one by one. Right. But it never lets it develop. And no. then I'm surprised with the pacing. Sometimes they just stay on shit for too long. They stay on characters no one cares about. Like, no offense, but Grey Worm, like, why do we so focus on him? Yeah. When it, it's just so. I know it sounds like I'm being negative, but I really do think it's like because of, of the positive that was that was uh, potent, the potential positive and HBO should have been a better steward of the show. And I'll just continue to say that forever. I just I know that the whole thing about these guys, the showrunners wanted to go do Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. And at that point, it would have been like, OK, fuck you then. We're not you don't get what you want. Then. Right. We're going to have some other people do the show now. You can go do Star Wars, which you never even got to do anyway. No, and they never did. No. And you're not, but you're, it's just like, you don't own the show. You don't, I don't know where they got off, like giving them that much power. And just let, if I were at HBO, I'd be like, we got to just stop. Maybe right. we can come back to it. But I know that seems crazy. But when you think about all the characters that are still alive at the end, there's nothing stopping them from, re, from literally redoing much of this yeah. if they wanted to. Yeah. And we'll talk about that later so that's kind of how i feel does that make sense that to, totally makes sense i mean the yeah. network kind of seemingly kowtowing to the creators or the showrunners is it does seem kind of odd you know that's a nebulous thing that's the thing that doesn't normally happen even if that showrunner is you know of you know a powerful sought after entity you know you think of your vince gilligan's and these other these other guys and girls that just are star studded in every way or have, you know, come with that Matthew Weiner, right? Same thing. Like you come with that project or two that you've done that heralded thing, ushering in the golden age of television and all that. But I'm not even sure Benioff and Weiss really are of that status. I mean, maybe after, con you know, creating the first five episodes, uh, seasons of game of Thrones, 
I'm pretty sure that they said themselves that they were shocked that they were even allowed to do the show. So crazy. Based on their like lack of experience. Yeah. So they were pretty green. So I think they got it seems like they got big heads or something. And then you have the audacity to go and to ruin this for Star Wars. Come on, man. I I mean, no offense. I know that that must be. I mean, imagine if they came to us and you want to make a Star Wars movie. But yeah, okay. But I don't know. It's just ironic that it was never made. And and it's Star Wars is just I know (laughs) so devoid of creativity right now. And I I think that that. Like I, I haven't watched the Obi Wan show because I'm not going to watch it. But I did watch all of the red letter media reviews of Obi Wan. Oh, you so have. That's how I've that's how I've seen the show. They were yeah, pretty soft that, on it. They were. They, they were. were. Yep. They were that's, pretty... how, that's how I've that's how I've seen it. That's okay. the most I'm going to see. Okay, so you're not even interested in watching what they're talking about. You just take it from those dudes. Yeah, I just I just kind of get the the idea, you know, from them. Okay, so <laughs> it is just funny to me that they kind of sacrificed Game of Thrones at the altar of Star Wars. It's just such a shame. Yeah, and letting Game of Thrones breathe, giving it more, letting it air out, giving it an additional season or two or three or whatever would have also contributed to the equation of a lot more money. So it doesn't even make sense in that regard alone. You know, just the revenue, the sheer revenue that more and more well done Game of Thrones could have brought in. It's pretty, it's pretty, uh, crazy that you would push yourself away from the table early and just say let's get it done you know let's wrap it up and it does feel like that even though a lot of it's good you know you're dealing with these an amazing story amazing characters and all these character arcs you want to savor it you know these are delicious characters these are rich delicious some of the best on television ever you want to really be with them enjoy it understand it and a lot of the stuff too that you were saying like winter the the advent of winter and what that means in this world and maybe explaining more about the dead and what that means and the cyclical nature of the way things happen in this place but we never get any of that it's you're right it's it just seems you you would want to rush the ending you know like when a show gets canceled and like are we gotta like wrap this thing up yeah It just you didn't you weren't under that kind of pressure it just seems so self-manufactured i'm confused by it however we, of course, have many listener inquiries from Patreon, patreon.com slash lastdaymedia. And Joe B. wrote in. Yo, Joe He B. says, hey, guys, call me crazy, but I don't hate the final season like so many others. While it does feel rushed, I don't know what the alternative was. Each season had multiple storylines being followed, and that allowed each to feel more drawn out. Now that all characters merged, we simply have, few, he says, less storylines, fewer storylines, Joe, to follow. <laughs> and that means the few we did follow needed to progress at a faster pace. This season pays off the prophecy told of nobody being able to kill the Night King in quotes, as well as the fierce rage Danny gives hints to having for eight seasons finally coming out, not to mention Drogon destroying the throne and ending the vicious cycle he saw kill his mom. While Bran as king does indeed suck, I did enjoy Game of Thrones giving us one final twist by not not giving Jon the crown and instead ending with the camera focusing on him leaving to the wildling territory. So how do you feel about that? I mean, do you think do you think this idea that like what were you supposed to do is relevant i think that there's something to be said about that more because george martin didn't give them any material other than certainly the bullet points as we said here so they had to kind of make it up on their own but do you think that this was about as inevitable an ending as maybe could have been imagined because it's certainly true to joe's point that a lot of people don't like the endings to a lot of things so would this have ever been immune even if they did it in quote unquote right what do you think yeah the ending always elicits the most criticism because that's it 
there's nothing else to criticize. You're all it's it's all culminating in that one moment in that in those last minutes, those last hours, whatever it is. And that's going to be the end of it. So there's nothing more to sculpt or shape or hope for. I do agree with Joe B in the fact of I don't hate the season as much as many people do right and we already talked about that i think it's good in a lot of ways but i disagree with joe in the fact that i think that the whole almost everything in this entire season could have been borne out and allowed to breathe and sort of stretched and slowed down with the one exception i would say danny's merciless unhinged assault on king's landing which is almost an entire episode and it's kind of hard to watch in a way it's one it's wonderful in a, in a way but just her going crazy going full-on targaryen on king's landing is the only moment or episode in the entire season i feel like they did justice to in length because you're really there with john with gray worm with aria in the streets you know with jamie there in the assault with Bronn with the mountain with Cersei you're really there you're really allowed to immerse yourself in that horrific that whole horrific thing that happens that whole horrific event but otherwise I would say I have a lot of ideas for how you could stretch it out you know the battle with the dead at Winterfell I feel like that could have been easily two episodes almost everything A to B B to C C to D in this season could have been drawn out and I think again at the center of that, Kyle, is just you want to get more of the characters. You know, there are a lot of characters that made me realize in watching this final season, you have characters like Gendry, Beric, I would argue Tormund, Podrick, Lady Mormont, maybe even Davos to some degree. You could have gotten, just in stretching it out and elongating everything and giving us more and slowing down and letting it breathe, you could have got more of those characters in there some of those beloved characters i would even say characters like Braun and stuff like that who they seem to kind of shoehorn in yeah he then, disappears right well, he, he kind of disappears they, they, well they basically kind of write it it just seems so impossible for me to believe that he wouldn't be involved in the fight but he they write it as such where he's like i'm not doing this right so he's benny bounces yeah and you know. then he comes back and you see him again at the, at the king's council at the end when he's kind of repaid his debt so to speak and i actually it's actually laugh out loud funny when um when Tyrion like calls out all of the different things he is now. Oh, it's you so know, good. Like, is the debt paid? <laughs> <laughs> but they're blasting through. You really do, as as wonderful it is, and I think, you know, again, you're anchored by the a lot of the production value, which I do think is good, and of course, the amazing acting. Even Peter Dinklage is back. We talked about him kind of stepping down and taking a hiatus from good acting for some reason in episode seven. He's yeah, they back. seem salty during that season. Yeah, He's back in full swing. And I think a lot of it, you know, so you're just enjoying it, but it does move at such a pace. You're like, whoa, whoa, you know, hold, hold, hold back, you know, pull the reins a little bit, pump the brakes. And it does give you that. It does have that energy. It does have that runaway locomotive energy, even though it's still good, if that makes sense. The only thing I would want to see is it's slow down. And I think really where it does finally for me go off the rails is when in that last episode six probably about halfway through where they're establishing that new order of rule you know all the who's all the lords of westeros now lords of westeros are kind of sitting around and establishing what 
things are going to look like. That's where for me, I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. That's where I would just, even the first time around watching it, it just didn't sit well. You know, it just felt like, all right, it felt like an epilogue when we could have gotten an entire another season out of that, probably. Yeah, the, the political reorganization of Westeros upon tens and tens of thousands, not 100,000 or more people just dead. Yeah, I mean, I, right. It's unclear what the population of the entire place is. I'm sure it's on the, online somewhere, but they lost a lot of people. I mean, they say they lost tens of thousands of people in the north alone. So you would think that the political reorganization and, and again, getting the rest of the world's like, what what is going on? Also, isn't Westeros like really vulnerable right now? I would I would. I don't know. I just think there's so many different ways you could have played it. I agree. And that that ending is cool in the sense that it's cool to see everyone together and like who's left. Right. I, I like when the I like when the camera's going around and um, Davos is like, I'm not sure I get a vote. But, <laughs> like, I think there's like some pretty funny moments. Also, when Edmur gets up and and she's like, just sit down. So good. It's just so it's it, like there are some really funny moments. There's good comedy good in moments. this season and good levity. It's an, I, oh, I never hear that mentioned. Well, it's true that the Tormund thing in episode two actually made me gutterly laugh because I had totally forgotten about it. So good. He's like, I killed a giant when I was 10 then I climbed right into his bed with his wife. When she woke up, you know what she did? Suckled me at her teeth for three months. Thought I was her baby. (laughs) That's good good. shit. That's good shit. I was dying. I was dying. I'm going to make an Everybody Loves Torment t-shirt, I think. You should. With the Raymond I mean, you see him, you know, he lives, which is cool. I mean, you see him at the end. Thank God. Thank Which God. is a very on Game of Thrones as well. I felt like the the stakes were not as high as I thought. You would assume almost everyone would have died. That's well in said. fact, I wouldn't have minded if they either lost or that almost all of them died in like stopping it. But it was like almost for nothing. Yeah, there was a lot of potential for that. And in fact, let's get into the next question, because I think it allows us to examine what might be a strength or weakness of the season, depending on how you look at it. Chad Lewis wrote in, said, hello, brothers, Moriarty. Chad. One one. Chad, Chad. one of my biggest (laughs) beliefs I have about the overall issues with both the show and the books Mm. is the idea that none of this matters in quotes because the White Walkers are coming. And it is, in fact, a truly bad idea. As a matter of fact, I think it's the reason why George Martin hasn't finished the books. At first glance, it may seem cool to have this off in the distance ominous threat that is the true villain. However, as this greater danger approaches, asking viewers and readers to let go of their allegiances in many of the rivalries the show is built upon, all of the emotions we've invested in this are let down of epic proportions and is what led us down to the rush battles and quick character demises we see in season seven and eight. Okay. Undrawing the lines in the sand and strategies that had seven seasons of building just isn't as interesting as seeing the wars of men play out. There is something to be said about this. This is why, although the very first chapter of the book and the very beginning of the show makes this impossible, there's something interesting about this having never actually happened. Because remember, we talk about how no one really understands, like things are so old and no one even really knows why the wall is there and the the night's watch is whatever. And the crows are looked at as kind of just the you know rapers and murderers. And it would have been an interesting turn for the threat not really to have ever been there at all or for the threat to have been much more internal. And like they're paying attention to the outside stuff when they really need to be paying attention to the evils within. There is something to be said about that. But regardless of this this zombie like movement, which is another disappointing thing, it's just zombies at the end of the day. Yeah, it's yeah, true. Is do you think there's something that because there is a lot of conspiracy theory? I know the conspiracy theories about why George Martin's not releasing these books. And one of them is, is that that people think that he doesn't know how to end it. Mm-hmm. There is something interesting. Like people, as you said here, I think, you know, he kind of wrote himself into these situations and 
at the end of the day, it is just a good versus evil story. So people have these grand expectations. These books are fucking huge. Mm. And then you're going to end it all in this like very little bit of time with just a very binary kind of good versus evil thing. Do you think that maybe having this overarching villain was actually not what was one of the deficits of the storytelling and that we really actually only care about the Westeros nobility? And that's a, that's a great point. Threat. You know, I'm sure it does kind of take on that guys for a lot of people. I wonder if George Martin was is scared off by the reaction to the ending of the show as well. If that kind of played into his flop sweat with, you know, who knows? I know he's long been delivering late and behind and all that, but I wonder, I'm sure he wasn't helped. I'm sure he wasn't encouraged by the reaction to the ending of, of the uh, TV series. But I, you know, for me, I really like the model of enemies sort of forming an alliance to fight against the common enemy. You know, you have, in many of these cases in Westeros, we get, what, five or six seasons of witnessing these ancient hostilities, you know, and sometimes centuries-long old grudges, you know, these well-established things of, you know, the the, West, the North, for instance, versus the South, and these families and these kingdoms that have, you know, have had bad blood for many, many, many years and many generations having to kind of put all that aside against the common enemy. And then if they're successful against this common threat, how it's going to fall out and look once they have to sort of take the place as enemies again and stand against each other or how that would dynamic would change. And maybe there would be alliances formed that were long lasting. Who knows? But I do like that. I think that's very interesting. And I think kind of standing the story on its head and really changing it 180 midstream is kind of exciting. But again, I think we didn't get, we got a lot of the beforehand, but we didn't get a lot of the afterward. Again, if it reads like an epilogue, it's what the better part of 40 minutes after, not after the dead are dealt with, but after Cersei is dealt with, it's like 45 minutes and then the show ends. So we don't get a lot now, you know, now we should say, too, they're talking about this sequel series based around John, John Snare, John <laughs> So that could be really interesting. But as a standalone show for the initial series, you know, it's very top heavy and we don't get a lot after afterwards, which, you know, it's not always a bad. That's not always a bad thing, it, but it just feels Everything that comes after the battle with the dead and everything that comes after the, that ultimate battle with Cersei and King's Landing and the Gold Company and everything, it just feels tacked on and hurried. You know, there's no escape. Oh, the Golden that. Company shit is, is absurd. Oh, totally man. absurd. The whole thing, how they introduce this general character and all this and the goofy, 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 it goofy is. shit. You almost think yeah. there's a lot of it that landed on the cutting room floor because it's so washed over. And done, you know, it's like, who, who even is this guy? You know, yeah, who cares? <laughs> who, who cares? cares There's mercenaries. It's, these are Hessians, basically. It doesn't matter at all. Like, I totally agree. That was bizarre. But the Angie's list, you know, and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. One of the strong parts of the show, I think, is actually the second episode. Mm. And Drew D'Amato wrote in about it. He said, hey, bros, hope you're both well. 
While the season Thank is certainly you. a disappointment, to be honest, I think the second episode is one of the best of the whole show. In a kind of out of context way, the character pairings are incredibly awesome. From Tormund talking about where Giant's Bane came from and Jamie knighting Brienne. It's a shockingly stellar episode in an otherwise disappointing season. What are your thoughts? P.S. Hope you turned your brightness up for season three of the show. I, I've long since given up seeing anything in season three. Season two is a very strong episode, though. I totally agree. It's where most of my notes come from. It's called A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. And uh, I'm wondering what you make of that episode and, and the different pairings that kind of everyone's gathered around talking, telling stories, drinking. And it is a cool collection of people, Gendry and others, you know, it, it just all coming together. Of course, um, Beric, my, my boy, uh, my favorite, the best. So what do you make of that episode in kind of the quiet before the storm as they're building up tension? See, that see that episode gets it right. But this is why that entire attack should have been 10 episodes, a whole season, because that could have been several episodes of just the quiet percolating of waiting and they're waiting. Maybe maybe even day turns night turns to day again and nothing happens. And they're all and there's like they're kind of like, oh, my God, they're hung over in there. They're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and all this storytelling and all of this stuff we've been waiting for this this exposition. It's a tease of what could have been. And it goes back to my thesis about this season, which is just that it's an it's an a compliment that we want more. It's a compliment. And so we I would have loved season or episode two for half the season. And I love it. Brienne getting knighted and all that is the best. Oh, what what do wonderful. you think? Yeah, so tell me about this, this second episode and how you feel about it. I mean, this is Game of Thrones at its best. We've talked about this all along the way when characters sort of mash up or meet for the first time or characters are reunited because this is one of those episodes that lets the story breathe and really gives you the characters. Just in sitting around drinking, in conversation, in exposition, whatever, it just works. Whether it's Jamie knighting Brienne or them sitting around enjoying wine together before the battle or John and Arya finally reunited, Arya and Gendry's sort of blossoming, odd, weird, but somehow tangible romance that's happening right. there. So you're getting a lot of those, those character moments with char a lot of characters that we really... That we're really into, good or evil, it doesn't matter. The characters that we're really invested in and we're able to enjoy them now. And I think that's what this series has done the best all along the way. And this is a, you know, this is sort of returning to the well in the last season and really letting us enjoy that. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, there was something really cool about the slowness to it. I, I'm a big fan of some of these characters. So it's it, some of the characters I like most lived. Like I was happy to see Davos live. I really like. His, his character quite a bit but seeing someone like jamie die it's like oh that's tough and jamie kind of reverting back to his old self in some way which is interesting and, and but brienne kind of getting her knighthood and it, there's there's a lot of fear and a lot of again they should have really let it linger for a while let it linger, linger. that's you know? it but you said it, they didn't they didn't no <laughs> no they didn't. the next episode after that though is all about the combat the one-off battle basically between good and evil and we can barely see it mark elfring wrote in and said as someone who watched the long night the day it released i have to ask did they correct the contrast or lighting for streaming after buying a 4k tv just weeks prior to this episode i was convinced i had made a grave mistake despite finding the episode to be trite and ridiculous i had to watch it three times to see everything that happened your medal and fortitude for toughing out the end of game of thrones and the prequels in such a short time frame for knockback should be awarded a medal hey all the best thank I'll you mark, for writing him this is a very contentious episode for a lot of reasons, but the darkness is a mystery to me. 
And I I watched it originally on a shitty TV and I couldn't, you know, shitty flat screen 1080p TV and I couldn't see it at all. I have 4K LED TVs and um, I, I can't see shit. You know? um, so <laughs> it's tough. It, nothing changes. Now, of course, these new these new TVs, it's, it's LED, right? That is the the uh, that I think that's right. That um, let me make sure I'm getting that right, because I'm not very technical. But I think that's the one. Yeah, that has like the really sharp ultra blacks and ultra whites. Yeah, the UHD. Right. Yeah, like I'm pretty sure that's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, OLED. Right. Yeah. So right, I have right, those TVs. Right. And so that's going to make the whites whiter and the blacks blacker anyway and pronou- make that all pronounced. So that sure. doesn't do any favors to this. In fact, <laughs> it probably makes it worse. I don't I don't know, but I'm confused by the, the aesthetic of this. Show. I'm, I'm wondering what you think of it, because I, I think about a movie we both love, like The Witch yeah. and how much the witch is so beautiful, consistently beautiful, because they don't use any lighting other than natural lighting and candlelight. That's right. it. And it makes it look real. This show does a pretty good job of that. But the lights, the lighting in the show is still really saturated when you're in the Red Keep, when you're in King's Landing, when you're in the south, when you're over the narrow sea. So it's not always like they, they didn't have this insistence throughout the entire show of having no unnatural light. So I'm or unknown, you know, uh, no artificial light. So when I go to this final battle, part of you, part of you can say, like, well, it's fucking cloudy as hell. There's no starlight. There's no moonlight. And this is the way it would have looked. And that's kind of cool. But it's a TV show. It's not a book. Like, you can say that in the book. Right. When, whenever that happens. Yeah. It is complete chaos. No one can see fucking anything. But here, I think you had to ha- kind of do it a little bit differently. And. So uh, before I even go any further, what do you think about the aesthetic? Did that bother you as well? Not being able to see anything? It reminds me a lot of like a Richard um, or, or Michael. Or I was going to say Richard Bay, not Richard. Bay. Michael Bay. <laughs> people probably don't even know who Richard Bay is. My, Michael Bay uh, Transformers movie where it's just toys smashing against each other. You have no idea what's going on. Like, I, I think you're totally fine. Just they could have literally put brackets and said like sword fighting. Yeah. For for I don't know what I was even looking at half the time and I'm not trying to be dramatic I just do not get what the point of these battles are it's like what they always make fun of on Red Letter with the prequel droid 8 million clone troopers <laughs> 7,000 lightsabers like what is this shit it's so stupid if you look at something like Saving Private Ryan mm. that's so deliberate in it's in its portrayal of total war this is comical and i'm wondering what you and obviously one's real and one's fake but what do you, <laughs> you know i the only thing i could think of with episode three first of all it is jarring because it's a standalone episode that looks you know the book ending episodes don't look like this it's just episode three now of course it's the battle at winterfell against the dead against the whites so it's a very specific event but i could only think that the strategy was to help create an air of horror you know fear hopelessness whatever and i think there are moments where that sort of aesthetic choice really pays off. For instance, when the Dothraki are riding out with their blazing scimitars against the dead, mm. and you just slowly see that wide shot of the lights getting extinguished and their noise of the howls dying down as the whites are just, they ran into, you know, this most, one of the most fearsome armies the world have ever seen is being extinguished by this army of the dead in seconds in minutes it's happening so i and i like the way the aesthetic the lighting choices and the darkness plays into moments like that the whole thing with melisandre too with you know with her fire magic 
and the whole thing of having to light the trenches and everything. I like the way that darkness is set against the flames, whether it's that, the trenches, the flaming arrows, whatever. But it is an odd choice for lighting. One person I watched a review or retrospective on the season mashed it up against one of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Ring movies. And it was one of the battles and it was too far the other way. Peter Jackson's cinematic thing was because everything was just washed in this bright blue and it was supposed to be at nighttime and it was goblins and orcs and it was supposed to be horrific, but it almost looked like a cartoon in comparison to how they handled it on Game of Thrones, which actually gave me more of an appreciation for the way GOT handled it in a way, but it is very off-putting. I remember seeing that for the first time, my little, I have like a little, whatever this is, 16 inch flat screen TV in my studio by my couch. And that's where I saw it the first time. And I remember thinking like, oh shit, like trying to like push the contrast so I could see what was going on without realizing that was kind of the intent. It almost reminds me of Christopher Nolan's Batman movies with the volume. It's like, why why is everything so expertly crafted, but you forgot to take care of the sound? You know, the audio levels are just not right. So it reminded me of that. But for the most part, I got to say, even in this, especially in this most recent watching, it didn't really bug me that much. On one hand, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm even would be looking for because it's just it's just bodies colliding with each other. And there's something there is something cool about that one shot when the when the body when the horde comes together with the with the undead and they just mix up and it gets like really silent and the bodies just collide because that's the way those kinds of fights would go sure in real life and one of the things not that the whites are real but with two human armies they would ride at each other like that and collide and it's so stupid I, old warfare is so dumb Man. but modern warfare is dumb too i mean it's all dumb Every time I see something like that in a movie or a TV show, I mm -hmm. think I don't I don't I think I'm riding the other way. I don't even think I'm brave enough to even be a part of that. Yeah, I don't (laughs) know how that all goes. It's very interesting. (laughs) But there is that. Yeah. The the one thing I think that they play with with the dark that I think is cool, because you're right, that the way the fire, that's probably the intent is the way the fire appears throughout throughout the episode. It really pops. But I love that they keep showing the dark like in front of the soldiers and they're waiting and they keep showing it you expect something to happen i thought it would have been kind of cool i know that the horde goes out to meet them but i think it would have been kind of cool if that just suddenly they just were there mm. you know like running full speed yeah in, in a mass and the fight just begins that way however i was wondering if you had this fundamental problem that i did with this which is they know based on their experiences above the wall that they the undead can actively turn those who have recently died against them. Now, this isn't a problem for the humans fighting the existing whites because they're doing it with dragon glass. So the dragon glass is destroying them or whatever. However, every one of them that dies becomes an enemy soldier. And I was confused why they were so open to fighting. I, I was saying, like, w- wouldn't you have taken all this time to create like this massive stone like, or not a stone wall, a moat? They'd obviously do the fire and all of that, but like make something really enormous, but let them come to you as much as possible. Have like some sort of plan to get body, like to burn bodies, have all of your weapons firing. You know, um, I don't know. I just that kind of bothered me because I was like, this seems needless, but maybe there's a hopelessness to it where like the, our only option is to actually fight them head to head, even though every one of us dying just joins their ranks. It doesn't really add up. And maybe this is the conundrum that they're having with ending the show. 
Does that bother you at all? Did you think about that? Yeah, there's all kinds of logistical things like that where you think, okay, then maybe they could have done this a little differently. I, I was thinking even, did I miss it? Did they play up any moments where you could actually clearly see that there was obsidian or dragon glass arrowheads, for instance? There's one part where Gendry has a bunch of it looks like spearheads, but were they using obsidian tipped arrows? Because you would think keeping your distance and destroying them that way would be the best use of your obsidian. I know they had a lot of it, you know, apparently they were mining it at Dragonstone, but things like that. It's like, not only that, but you think of like, kind of, I was, you go into this for the first time and you're thinking, all right, they have an undead, the, the Night King has an undead dragon. He's got undead Viserion, right? It's like one dragon versus two. Even and their army is the dead's army is what 10 times as large as whatever man could cobble together. So you're kind of nervous for mankind going into this battle, right? Especially just because of the advent of having a dragon. And the dragon turned out to be this totally underpowered thing. It was like this this weapon of mass destruction that they had. It just turned out to be kind of almost a non-issue in a way. You know, they had this great thing in this undead dragon. You think, all right, they got this trump card, but it turned out not even to be a thing. So, again, I think they could have. I like a lot of what they do with this battle and creating the horror and creating. It looks like there's a couple of times in there where the tide of the battle seems to be going against the, you know, the humans. And it looks like they've all but lost. But drag that out. You know, and put more in there for a couple of episodes at least to make it really look like a proper struggle. Totally. I totally agree. The there's something missing with this arc because they are just zombies, but they're not. It, it, you can't really compare them to The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead doesn't, doesn't have a leadership mm. or sentience. What were they even doing? Like, I don't. See, in slowing down the end of the story and spreading it out more, we could have gotten I wouldn't have minded necessarily a glimpse from their perspective. Like there's got to be some sort of intent or organization or origin story or something. Go back in the past, very Lord of the Rings style, you know, but show. I mean, they do that in this, too. I mean, Bran goes back into the past in his visions and we that's how we learn about who John is and all the rest. So I just feel like it kind of sucks that it reduces to a, a zombie. They don't, they don't spend enough time. Maybe they do in the books, but mm. they don't seem to spend enough time making it clear who these people even are, who, what this force even is. And I still have a hard time understanding the full scope of their world and the, and the effect that this could have on other places. And we know that Arya is going and exploring other unexplored parts of their planet and all the rest, but that's a fundamental problem to me. And I agree with this notion that, it's kind of a little anticlimactic. I wouldn't have necessarily minded if it wasn't them at all, like, or that, that it ended up being a faint kind of where it's like, ah, that's not even the problem we, we have our, ourselves to worry about. Maybe that's the whole point is that we're, we're our worst enemy, not these, this mystical group. So I don't know. That kind of left me hanging a little bit because there's more, there's gotta be more to it. I They're agree. not just this moving bodily horde of mass, just, you know, like the walking dead. It's not, it's, they're not, and uh, they use weapons. They 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 can work. They're somewhat intelligent. I mean, they they collapse on themselves to make pass across the fire. They can wield all sorts of axes and swords. And I don't know. I, I just feel like they they didn't really give them their their due. And yeah. I will reiterate. Micah got so mad at me because I kept saying it. I'm like this. 
the designs of the Night King and his officers just bad. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they could have done. Like you said last time, and I agree with you, the undead horses are super cool. Those are cool. But I don't know, man. It's just I was saying, I'm like, this looks like a spirit Halloween mask or something. Yes, I don't, there's something. I don't get what, what is this? This is so bad. Like I, it just <laughs> that's another problem, too, because the costuming and the, the all of it's so perfect. And I was even remarking with the Golden Company, when you see them, they all have like different boots on different curses and. So it's like there's a lot of work going in there. They could have easily just printed out or gotten a oh, good shit. 20 million of these boots made and all this and give them all. But they don't because it makes it more grounded that they're just mercenaries using their own shit and they all have different helmets and all. So it's all all this stuff so well done. And then you look at the Night King and you're like, really? Yeah. Like, yeah. why couldn't this be like a I think it probably is a person at times, but why couldn't it have yeah, been definitely. a person? Yeah. Like, like, why couldn't it have been a person? You know, and not this. I don't know. It's almost 80s action cartoon camp, half cheesy. Yeah, it almost they, the the whites and the Night King specifically really look like almost intentionally like 1982 heavy metal video type thing. It's interesting, too, Kyle. There's another thing I thought of, too, going along the same lines here. There's this weird parody with the Army of the Dead, too, because some of these are obviously just peasants or citizens or villagers, right? And then some of them, like when um, Tormund and Beric return to Winterfell and say, whoever's left out there is with the dead now, you know, because they ask about the Costarks or the Umbers or something. And they basically intimate that that whole family is, you know, that all of those bannermen are basically dead now. But they would be soldiers. So if mm-hmm. these were undead soldiers versus undead villagers or undead old women or something, you would think they, those people would be in the vanguard. But there's some kind of weird parody where it's almost like it's this this unified, disposable cannon fodder army where the strength beyond the whites, beyond the lieutenants and the Night King, the strength is just in the sheer overwhelming numbers. And that each one is just the same equal footing cannon fodder, if that makes sense. Which is weird because you think the warriors that die, look, Viserion dies, becomes an undead dragon. He's still a fucking dragon. He's even more badass. So, you know what I mean? So to establish and giving this another episode or two could have spelled some of that out. And maybe even the Night King, I don't want to make it some video game, you know, true. This is my true power scenario where you have like, you know, three stages of the final boss or something. But maybe, you know, the Night King is thought to be this ultimate evil, this ultimate enemy. And he's just a, you know, he's just a scout. You know, he's just the tip of the iceberg for what's really coming. And who knows, maybe they do that with this John Snow series. But that could have been interesting, too. And that could have been another part of the formula for really stretching this out and making more and making them really good and making this look like, a proper again a proper struggle because the preparation and the talk and the fear and the strategizing and the commiserating around the war table and everything like that is much more spelled out and stretched out than the actual battle and it, so as a result of course it's going to feel anticlimactic we barely got anything we got one episode of what the fight would actually look like when it came down the brass tacks and that's just that's just weird writing. <laughs> it's like so yeah, strange that they would make that I choice. Agree. I agree. One other thing I wanted to ask you here about this last 
or I'm sorry, this final fight, it's not the last episode, is the Night King f getting killed by Arya, which rubs some people the wrong way. Kamza115 wrote in and said, Hi, Brothers M, what are Yo. your thoughts on Arya being the character to ultimately defeat the Night King? I remember when this episode came out, a lot of people were disappointed that Jon wasn't the one to deliver the killing blow. I think the Night King knew that Jon could beat him, which is why when Jon had his chance, the Night King raised the dead to slow him down. I like that it took a different approach to slay the Night King rather than an all-out sword fight. Huh. Personally, I thought that it made perfect sense that Arya would be the one to take him out. From being taught sword fighting by Serio Pharrell to learning the ways of assassination and skullduggery in the House of Black and White, felt like it was a well-earned payoff to her journey across all eight seasons. What say you two? Yeah, I don't have a problem with this. I, I, I'm surprised that people do have a problem with it. I love the, the scene of her dropping the knife to the other hand and stabbing him. And it's, it's super cool. Again, it doesn't make the Night King cool at all, but she's... I think someone had said earlier, and I wasn't smart enough to ever make this connection, but that they say that nobody can kill the Night King, and she is nobody. Like, that's the whole oh, thing. Is that she, shit. She's, you know, she's trying to become nobody. What? And so I think that that is the idea, but I don't know for sure. What do you think? That's a great that? take, dude. Congra that, congratulations on that take. That's huge. I never thought I mean, of that. I mean, I stole that from someone else, so don't... don't that's yeah, fantastic. Don't, uh, but listen... I'll take, I'll take the credit. That's fine. It doesn't bother Thank me that's Arya. It had to be somebody, right? Here's the thing that I'm a little confused about with the Night King, though. And again, this is kind of those those lingering questions that we're left with. He's obviously got some sort of magical, supernatural, precognitive thing going on. When she, you can't attack him from behind. She lunged into the air, and she's as swift, and she you know she sneaks up on John all the time. You know, it's like what are you doing that type thing. He knew she he turned around in time to catch her by the throat and everything like that. But why? He saw that, but he couldn't see the dagger drop from hand to hand. Ah, little strange, but mm. I, I like it. Mm. I mean, I, I don't mind. Mm. It's so satisfying, by the way, when they're killed with the obsidian or the Valerian steel and they just kind of shatter into pieces. I love that. But, I, you know, it had to be somebody. Why not Arya? I think it gives her something to do. And I like that. I really like that take about nobody could kill the Night King, too. And I think... That's pretty cool. It makes me want to, it really makes me want more of Arya too, which we know she's going to set out for West of Westeros and be kind of a, go off on her Christopher own. Christopher Columbus brief. type. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? That's kind of like, wow, she really did become a force to be reckoned with after all her adventures. Yeah, she really did. I, I don't mind it so much. I like Arya. I like that character. I think it, you said the thing with her and Gendry is weird. I, I agree, but it's because they don't let the romances percolate enough. Yeah. Um, and that actually brings us to the next inquiry. Mac Daddy X4 wrote in and said the Moriarty brothers are known lovers and not fighters. So <laughs> do the two of you have a favorite coupling in a season filled with love and romance? We have John and Danny continuing their relationship. Nephew and aunt, because we need to keep meeting that incest quota. Sure, it ends in murder, but what royal pairing doesn't? That's right. Jamie and Brienne pairing up two characters that are really good for each other, even though Jamie decides to go back to his toxic ex. Arya and Gendry finally fulfilling a Stark and Baratheon hookup decades after, uh, after decades of near misses. Thank you both for eight enjoyable episodes. That pushing 100 hours of television you had to sit through. So less time than it will take Dagon to beat Red Dead Redemption. I agree. I can't <laughs> <say it. Try laughs> wow. Is it 100 that. and nearly 100 no. hours? Oh, of TV? For Game of Thrones? Yeah, something wow. like that. Yeah, probably. That's amazing. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, there is a lot of romance here. Now, I think that one of the unfortunate things about the pace of the season is that it doesn't let the romance blossom. Mm. None of it really feels real. The only romance that truly feels authentic is Brienne and Jamie to me. That because that's been that's been bubbling and the tension is there. Love it. But 
they got to let John and Danny kind of like, like let that marinate a little bit. Grey Worm and Missande um, is another good one. And obviously seeing her beheaded is tough. She was a cool character. I like her. Like the translator. Yeah, she was a, a good character. character. Fun character. And so, yeah, and Gentry and Arya, it, none of it feels quite right. But I think a lot of it is just pacing because you because romance above everything else. You need to believe it like love, you know, it's it's a um, how do you put it? It's, it's it's something deeper than I think violence or conflict or argument or whatever, like love requires an understanding of the nature of the relationship and their interactions with each other and their origins and their conversations and the exposition and all that. And so the pace, while the pace doesn't do any favors to anything, I think in this entire season, I Mm -hmm. think it almost undoes the romantic pairings and where they're going to go, especially because Jamie and Brienne is undone by Jamie going back ultimately to Cersei and, I think that needed more time too. So what do you think about the romance and, and kind of how they try to pair everyone up? It's very on game of Thrones as well. I think to let all these people kind of have happy endings. Yeah, it does seem like there's this encroaching sentimentality a little bit in season eight. If anything else that makes it kind of another one of those things that makes it stand out from the rest of the show. Not that I necessarily mind it, but at the same time you have that sentimentality seeping in a little bit. I have to give my compliments to a little bit of restraint two in the romance department in season eight because they don't feel compelled to couple up everybody and they could have done that as ridiculous as that would have probably looked you know Sansa is not paired off Tyrion doesn't find love again they don't feel the need to give Davos a love interest although it seems like he's flirting with Missunde or not in this season earlier in the show you know it's maybe uh season six and seven and then the romance that we're allowed to sort of witness this season is actually pretty cool. I think the Sans, the Arya Gendry thing is actually interesting because I like how it gives Arya a little dimensionality. You know what I mean? It gives her a little more dimension in that she is interested in relationships. She is interested in sex and romance and all that kind of thing, but she doesn't, but she's this type of woman who's pretty novel in this world, I guess, who doesn't want a relationship. She doesn't want to be hindered by, you know, Gendry proposes to her and, you know, offers her everything. And she's like, that's not for me. So I like that that plays into Arya's character a little bit, but she still has the romantic tendencies and all that kind of thing. I think that's really neat. And of course, the love triangle between Jamie, Cersei and Brienne is a really interesting one. And it's a heartbreaking one when Brienne begs Jamie to stay. That's a really teary eyed moment for me, Definitely. you know, where she really sees the good in him, but you know, that inevitability of both Jamie and Cersei, that's their, their love for each other. Their bond is their not only their undoing, but that's their life's blood for each other. And that's the air that they breathe is each other that doomed relationship is they're so compelled to it. They're cursed by it and they cannot, it's got the the claws in both of them and it's going to lead to their demise, you know? And I think they both know that throughout the show, but they just, 
that's it. That's their destiny. That's their fate. And Brienne's kind of caught in the middle. And they also do a thing where I have to give a shout out to Tormund because he never, he never gets to be with Brienne. Mm-hmm. And he really digs her. And you love that character. So you want to kind of see it pay off. And you know he's a good-hearted dude, although he's this mm. giant killer and he's this fearsome warrior. You he's know, like the women don't like me down here. Or something like that, is, <laughs> he's great. He's the best. So, yeah, But I wonderful. like it. And I like, you know, I have to give a payoff to the restraint because they could have done more with that. And of course, Sunday dying, you know, Sunday dying is one of the things that sparks the the war, you know, and what Danny ends up doing and what Grey Worm ends up doing too as her top lieutenant. So that's an yeah. interesting set of events too that sparks off a, a big part of the season. Certainly. Well, let's yeah. stick with Brienne and Jamie for now. Yeah. Go to Brienne first. Matthew LaConfora wrote in and said, brothers, in the long list of characters done dirty, my mind always skips past the Danny and John of Westeros. John, Danny's and Don, John's of Westeros and head straight to Brienne. Okay. I feel nothing but confused anger at seeing the most badass female warrior in the show just stand there and cry like a babbling brook when Jamie leaves. Oh, How do you so guys feel sad. her character was treated in the last season? I get what they were going for, but it just seemed like her and Jamie both did three or four about faces this season and left me feeling like I misunderstood every motivation they had. I think this is deeper than it seems. I, I, Brienne... I don't know. I don't want to say everyone, but I, people are are un, not uncommonly in love with people that they can't have or shouldn't be with. And they know it. And um, I think Brienne with Jamie was in some way never going to be and was never supposed to be. And she was kind of fooling herself into that, even though they finally had sex and, and she was knighted. And Jamie clearly loves her and cares about her. Sure. But what I really loved about it was Brienne is she's above it and she's a stoic and interesting character. And I love that they kind of resolve it by her writing the extensive notes about him in the book. And we Mm -hmm. see that book earlier and Jamie doesn't really have much of an entry in this, um, in this book of knights and what they've done and everyone has their great deeds. And she fills the entire thing in. And I really like that. So I think that that's a really nice touch. And I, because they kind of saved each other and gave each other a cause to live. And it could have gone the other way, but it didn't. How do you feel about Brand's ultimate ending? She, she lives and she has a seat at the table and she is kind of the, the progenitor of Jamie's legacy in some way. Yeah, I mean, we're all cheering for Brienne. She's one of everybody's favorite characters because she's so noble and heroic and just inherently good. But... And I love the I I gotta say I really really enjoy the love affair between Brienne and Jamie and their romance because it's so tragic, and it's inevitably tragic because Brienne is in love with this version of Jamie. It's a real version of him, but it's a version of this man that he can't stay as for long ever because he's ultimately beholden to Cersei, and she's evil. And that's who he swears his ultimate allegiance to. That's so because he's beholden to his love for Cersei, Jamie can't be that man, that other man that he could very well be if he chooses or if he could just break free of that curse, that cursed love for his sister. But he can't. And that's the version of Jamie that Brienne's in love with. And she knows that man is in that husk. It's in that shell somewhere. But he just can't realize it. And I love the way that she doubles down on his love, uh, on her love and her affection for him and how much she cares for him, even after he leaves. 
with singing his praises and recording his heroic deeds in the book that, you know, once that's the one Joffrey was sort of galling him over, you know, initially seasons earlier where he's like, oh, I see you don't have many things recorded in this book, uncle type thing. And Brienne solves that and she's able to, and with her help, he he's able to escape that Kingslayer mantle. Right. He's he's right. More yeah, than he, that. He, she rehabilitates his like image. Absolutely. In, posthumously. He, right. He, exactly. Exactly. As far as Jamie is concerned, Jonathan Smitty wrote in and said, compact and disc. I've only got one question for you today. <laughs> is there a more insulting and betraying line written for a character than Jamie Lannister saying he cares not for civilians, innocent or otherwise? Of all the insanities committed by season eight's rush to the finish, the undoing of one of its strongest characters in, in his entirety is what left the most sour taste in my mouth. Stay safe and never forget the night is dark and full of terrible writing. Thank you, Jonathan, for writing in. <laughs> there is something tragic about Jamie's end, and I don't dislike it. I think it's part of the examination of human nature through the lens of this story, which is no matter what he experienced, no matter the situation he went through, he lost his hand, he's been captured multiple times, he's met this other woman, he's done, been on all these adventures, and he just it all goes back to Cersei. It all returns back to the family and the blood. And and um, it's frustrating, but I like it because it feels real. It feels true to the character. I like their end scene. She, I think um, Cersei's performance is, is pretty amazing in that last scene where she's like, I don't want to die and all these things and everything's crumbling around them and he just hugs her and, and, and they get crushed. I dig it. What, what do you think about Jamie kind of reverting back to the mean at the end we said he's rehabilitated and it's true because yeah. no one knows any of this really happened i mean that's the thing is no one is any of the wiser she's pregnant too i mean so yeah. no one's the wiser of any of this stuff plus he kills Euron, so he's he's free on on that front so i i wonder um what do you make of of jamie kind of not changing ultimately yeah. And you know, he didn't care that he was going to die. He just had to die in her arms. That was his whole goal in returning. I, I love the whole tragedy in this arc because, yeah, we were on this ride with Jamie from season one on and his journey through light and dark and what Kyle said about that being very realistic and about that making a, a human being have that th those levels of dimension. It really makes me lament for Jamie and sort of feel for him because you do wonder without Cersei in this world let's say Cersei never existed what could he had what could he, ha he have been what could he have become and you know it's also very important to say Jaime is the only Lannister to report north to Winterfell after Cersei's betrayal he still goes so there is that heroism there is that goodness there is there is that nobility there that honor that he has and in the same breath he says it in that monologue when he's talking to Brienne and he says like I would do I would kill anybody I would do anything I would commit any atrocity for Cersei and that it, for that it's it's very romantic and then it's very strange, too, for us, because then we realize that's a very romantic notion. That's also his sister. We're constantly reminded of that. And then also, it's very tragic, because this is underneath all of that. This is a good man, but what's of paramount importance 
is his duty to Cersei and his love for Cersei. And that comes first. So that evil is what always takes ultimately what always takes precedence and that darkness. And because that's who she is and that's who he has to be in order to be with her. So it's awesome. And I remember you telling me very early on, Kyle, that Jamie was one of your favorite characters. And I, I was already like, at that point, I had only watched maybe two seasons. And I was like, wow, that's a weird take because he's kind of a he's kind of a detestable character up to that point. But as you go on this journey with Jamie, you realize there's so much to him and your heart really breaks for him because he's just he can't escape the grasp of Cersei. And that's that's ultimately you're hoping he does. But after that speech to Brienne and Brienne's begging him to stay. And he says he'll never do that. You know that's it for him. You know what I mean? He'll never be the Jamie we want to see. <laughs> right. And I, I don't I dig that. Yeah, he is one of my favorite characters because I think that he's on two tracks the entire time. He's in this familial and familiar track that he wants that he gravitates towards, and then he wants to be a hero. Like he wants to do the right thing. I think even going back to the to the Kingslayer thing, like he was doing what he thought he was supposed to do. And sure. he, he was and everyone was there and no one stopped him, but everyone slapped him with this title that has haunted him and his honor forever. And uh, I really dig the scene, his last scene with Tyrion, where Tyrion's crying and hugging or whatever and saying, like, you are the only person that, you know, didn't ridicule me or make me feel, you know, un, you know like a monster and all that. And so, you know, that there's that other track with Jamie where he's a human and you see it over and over again. And I really dig that character. In fact, I think it comes out even more in the books that as I'm reading so far that he's like a much more conflicted character. Oh, when, that's when cool. They push brand out of the window in the very beginning and all the rest. Like yeah. he's he's a much more in my mind, much more reluctant and much more enraptured with the woman of Cersei than than maybe in this one where it seems more like family and I don't know loyalty. But I, I don't know enough about the books yet to to be able to say for sure. Mm. Another thing people want to talk about in this episode, of course, because the other big momentous occasion is the attack on King's Landing. And Mike D wrote in and said, first time through, I didn't mind the final season as much as the others did. But watching it again, I can see how devastating this was and such a waste. I don't think we'll ever see a show like this again. And they rush it to the end, though. Everyone was disappointed that Daenerys went bad in the end. Were they not paying attention? It's an interesting. (laughs) This is interesting because I feel like this was inevitable. And I will always 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 and people can go back and watch old kind of funny episodes i will always find it hysterical that i called it so many years ago when people started naming babies denarius and khaleesi and all that i'm like you are (laughs) playing with fire like you quite literally you don't know how they're going to end this character and she ends up being exactly like the mad king and i like that a lot they tease it a lot her temper and all these different things and it kind of ratchets up as we go, they they kill, obviously, Sam's that this kind of the prelude is kind of Sam's family being killed when they're all trying to surrender. Sure. And by the way, I, just as an aside, I find it hilarious that Sam is so upset with Danny when he finds out that his brother and his father were killed. It's like, what do you care, dude? These people were horrible to you. So bad. Horrible to you. You know, especially your father. Dad, like, and he was yeah. like all devastated. It's like, what are you, what are you <laughs> upset about? But anyway. I like Danny's turn. I like that it didn't take much. And I dig that she. That's why I love the bells thing. The old tradition in King's Landing, the bells will ring when they're surrendering. And in fact, you can hear people screaming. And I, I only caught much of it through because I watch shows with um, 
with subtitles, but a lot of people are screaming, like ring the bells, like over and over again at various parts to like surrender. So when when that happens, you expect, okay, so they're the the war is over and they're going to have to figure out and capitulate and do all these kinds of things. But she goes on this rampage and she's supported, like you said, by Grey Worm, who is totally down with helping her because they both share the same love or a similar love for the person that was killed and Masande. So what did you think about her ultimate turning and becoming the villain? I feel like I agree. Like, I don't know how you can go into this and not realize that that was going to happen. To me, that's like the smallest of all the mysteries was that Danny was going to become evil. Absolutely. I, I don't I don't know how we could have interpreted it any other way. So that is weird because for all the problems I have with the last season, that's not one of them. I feel like that was always going to happen. That's why I thought it was funny. People were naming their kids Daenerys in 2013 because I was like, she is going to become an evil character and your kid is going to be named Daenerys. <laughs> So anyway, go on and uh, talk to me about her this last season. Yeah, I mean, what happens, the atrocity that's committed at King's Landing via Danny doesn't surprise me. I, I, like you, Kyle, think it was inevitable. I always saw Danny as this conqueror and this warlord. I think from the beginning, I think she's operates under the guise of being this liberator. But I think her lust for power and her sort of uncompromising thirst for the Iron Throne and just her uncompromising nature in in all ways. She can't even think to share power. She can't. There's nothing democratic about her. I, I really think that this madness was always sort of behind her eyes. And I think, you know, it comes out. She succumbs to this Targaryen madness eventually. I think... You have these people, right, in the Targaryens, and they have this power that's almost supernatural, right? They're impervious to fire. They control, they have control over dragons, you know, some of the most fearsome beasts in the world. And they're, they're all powerful because of it. But the trade-off is they have this inherent, I guess, passed on sort of, what would you say, likelihood for this insanity right that they there's something behind there's something wrong with them you know there's a rage there's the the quest and the the lust for power is just too great that's what takes precedence not mercy not compromise none of those things and that all bears out and that's what, you know, people have been saying about her through this through the series. But that's what Varys finally saw and was trying to get Tyrion to see was like, this is not going to go well. She is going to go from, you know, being the hero we thought she all was to being worse than Cersei was ever. You know what I mean? Worse than her worst enemy. And I think, you know, it's so it's so interesting to see that bear out. And it's so tragic because they have this fight. I mean, Cersei's defiant, right? When they meet at the walls of King's Landing and the mountain beheads in the Sunday and they're trying to have a conversation. That's when, you know, ultimately, that's when Danny snapped and decided she was going to do what she was going to do after. And they they have a proper war. Cersei basically asked for it, right? After Danny flies in, here comes the Dothraki, here comes the Unsullied. 
they take out the gold company, the golden company, right outside the gates. They get inside the red cloaks and the Lannister army throw down their swords and the bells ring. That's where it should have ended. But instead, that's where it started because Danny just goes on this kill crazy rampage and just takes out all of King's Landing, the peasants, the citizens, the town people, the children, the elderly. And it's she devastates and she can't even stop herself. It's that it's that anger. It's that. And she still says after everything's done and King's Landing is burning and everybody's dead, she says that she liberated that place. So there's this sickness, there's this propensity to madness, right. this Targaryen propensity to madness that is ultimately their curse and is ultimately this family's undoing. And she was no different than her father. I, I mean, I, I love that. Personally, I just think it's, that's where it was all going. And me so too. That, that doesn't bother me at all. I agree with you. All right, let's talk about a couple of other things here. I wanted to bring a couple of other issues to the front that I just thought were notable or that I wanted to get your take on. The one thing I wanted to say was about production itself. Mm. Something really sticks out to me in this season because it all takes place in the north for the most part, except for when it goes to King's Landing. But by the time we get to the south, it's snowing down there, uh, which I think is interesting, too. You never see their breath. And there is no evidence of it actually being cold in the show. And I think this is a huge problem. And I was saying to Micah that they really should have gone out of their way to try to film these things in truly cold places. I know it would have been hard and it would have been uncomfortable and challenging, but this is HBO and it's Game of Thrones. And when there are, I mean, you used to love football and I, I still love football. Think about like the Packers playing outside. And, oh, and, yeah, those old and, NFL um, films. Right. And it's so like they're good. all lined up and the breath is just coming out of the helmets and it's all I mean, that's good shit. That's the way it looks when it's really cold. It just doesn't look right. And <laughs> when you focus in on it, it's not good. I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. I'm surprised they didn't even try to do that with some CG. The other part about that that's kind of related is the snow just looks really bad. The snow looks fake. And this is why you should have gone to a cold or truly cold, snowy place and tried to do it right. Imagine if. If. Um. George Lucas tried to film Tatooine in a in a warehouse. Sure. Right. Or Hoth in a warehouse like they actually went to these places. In fact, that famous crawl of Luke Skywalker is outside of their hotel because they couldn't film anywhere because it was snowing too much. It's not amazing. But it looks right. It looks good. No one will ever say that Tatooine doesn't look like the desert. It's fucking Tunisia. So it is the desert. And while I know they go on location to Iceland and all these different places, I just feel like the winteriness was just not captured. And I don't know how more people aren't talking about this because I feel like the snow especially looks so bad. It looks when it's sitting on everything. I'm like, snow doesn't look like that. It doesn't sit like that. It looks like it's sprayed on. You see it in the in the weirwood and the, with the red tree, especially when they're spraying on the bottom of it. Clearly. There's just a lot of things like this episode or season very similar to the last season feels and looks cheaper to me. Yeah. And that goes right on down to that black ass fucking third episode that we were talking about. But just the little things and the practical effects that doesn't look right. Did did that stick out to you at all? It definitely does. I mean, it does kind of look like 1950s TV episode snow, like, you know, like movie set snow. But the thing was that I was confused about and I wanted to pick your brain. I never got to the bottom of this. Is that supposed to be snow in King's Landing or is that ash, oh, ash still yeah. settling from the devastation? 
that's probably what that is, is the ash. But that's that's neither here nor there, because I'm mostly talking about the the uh, the north. Yeah, but you're right. King's Landing, there are times where they do such a good job with the snow on the ground and it's kind of mixed in with the mud and it looks like a proper muddy, you know, like you would see on a dirt road in real life or something. But there's other times where there's snow on the walls in King's Landing and it really looks like powder. They don't make any effort to look like there's new snow over old snow that's melting or icing right. down the wall. It's like, have like, you ever seen snow before, guys? Like this does, this isn't the way it looks. It's pretty bad for a show with such high production value. But I am still curious if that is supposed to be snow in King's Landing, because the mm. the comment there could be that this, you know, winter is coming. The world is changing. This is what winter is going to look like. This is, you know, when it gets devastating like this and you have these seven year winters, it does snow in King's Landing. It does snow in Dorn. So I'm not sure. But, and that, you know, there's that weird part where Drogon's covered in the ash or snow, how long could he have possibly been laying there to be covered in ash? You know what I mean? It would make more sense if it was snow. So I'm not really too sure about that. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, again, with the spiral design that they bring up. You see that in the very beginning of the show. Sure. I like when that, that the kid Umber, uh, Lord Umber, I think, goes and tries to get his people and then they like staple him to a wall, basically, and they make they take pieces of the body and they... It's disturbing. Making in that spiral galaxy sort of thing. And one of the cool things I thought with the Night King when he dies is that his effect over the bodies around him seems to emanate from him. If you watch it, like people closest to him fall first and then they're falling and they're falling outward. Some sort of spiral kind of area of effect. Did you notice that that symbol at all? And did you are you curious? Like what? Again, it, it implies a, 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 they're doing this. They're intelligent. It implies that they're not just zombies. I don't. I don't know. Did you want to learn more about that? Did you notice that design? Definitely. And it's horrific. I mean, they go, they, that's the thing that they do in the very first episode of the show, right? Where those three knights watch me around, right? And they, they're out on a scouting party or whatever. And they find that. And I like that. I like those horrific sort of connections to the dead and the Night King. And I think they should have done more of that because I think it makes it scarier because, you know, when Arya's like you were saying before, they look a little campy sometimes. They're not as frightening. I thought they were a little more frightening um, at uh, what was it called? The battle. Um, what was the battle called where they fought with the wildlings against the dead? Oh, yeah. Hard I, don't home. Know. I don't know. The Battle that... of Hardhome. Right? Hardhome, right. I thought Hard they were home, pretty right. scary there. But a lot of times they're kind of goofy, right? So it would be nice to have a little more of those horrific intonations, not just for the symbolism, but again, like you're saying, for that, you're, the seeming intelligence that these are not just zombies. This is not just the Walking Dead we're dealing with or Attack on Titan. This is something different. This is something supernatural. And I, I like that. And also just the atrocity of murdering a kid. I mean, it get, that's a really horrific thing, especially for a season where you feel like, okay, they're letting a little bit of the sentimentality in. There's levity. There's humor. Here's Tormund telling a goofy story. And then all of a sudden, it's like a murdered kid pinned to a wall of stone wall. It's like, holy shit. With all these severed limbs around him, it's like, holy shit. You know, it gives it kind of gives me glimpses into what Game of Thrones could have been. And I think I would have liked it a little more like that because the stakes are higher. You know, you're fighting an enemy who's truly frightening then, you know. Another thing I wanted to ask you about or just kind of bring up, I guess, 
is do the events of this season in particular confirm that the fire god is the real god mm. this is something they never really get into everyone has their own gods but we only ever see the fire god make himself or herself or itself known i mean do you agree i, I don't know because we hear about baylor and all that i think that's the the kind of like jesus-like character that with the star icon right and there are all these different religions across the sea and the mountain goddess and their mountain mother or whatever they call it and it, with the uh the Dothraki and all the rest, but none of these gods or religions make themselves known. Only the fire religion makes itself known and it makes itself known. Obviously, Beric is revived like 7000 times and then <laughs> John is revived and we see all these guys like light their their swords on fire. And then obviously we have the, the red woman come in and play a prominent role in the in the fight at in the north at, near the wall. So I'm wondering or at Winterfell. So I'm wondering does that in, does that indicate to you that this is the real God and the real religion or is there more to it than that? Yeah, it does seem to be intimating that, right? You could only read into it that much because of Beric and Thoros and the Red Priestess and the fire religion and the success and the battle. And, you know, the, the fact that they do a good job in making it seem like. Though there there's wrongheaded things about that religion too. The Red Priestess makes mistakes. I mean, she comes to atone for it in the end and acknowledges that. But, you know, you have these other religions in this world, whether it's the five gods or the Bravosi worshiping the the god of the dead at the house of black and white, or the various religions in Essos and stuff. So I like that it's these this you know, there's multiple religions in this world, but it does seem like there's some they're saying there's something to this fire god and to this this specific religion that sort of saves them from the army of the dead at the end yeah i i wish that they they go into that more or would go into that more because there just seems to be a real religion and then a bunch of fake religions i don't know if that's the indication or if that these religions can all kind of exist in perpetuity because i guess there is some sort of level of supernaturalism with the house of the black and white or whatever sure um but anyway I wanted to ask you about that. I also wanted to just bring up Lady Mormont. I, I love that character. Ah. Cute little armor. I think it's so funny. She's like got this little suit of armor on and her killing the, the giant. What I was thinking about with that was I was like, I hope someone sees that or knows that that happened because they'll write songs about her and she'll be like known as the giant killer or something like that. So I, I like that character a lot. We'll see her soon in The Last of Us on HBO. And Dude, that's right. I was wondering what you thought of um, Beric sacrificing himself to save Clegane and Arya. I, I feel like there's I love that character. And, and Micah makes fun of me because she, he's like, he's never in it. I'm like, I know, but he's so awesome. <laughs> he's so <And> underused. <laughs> I know it's, it's a shame. He's in the book a little bit more. Oh, that's good but, to know. But um, what do you think of him? Kind of he's Beric always seemed, especially after the priest died, he always seemed fixated on Clegane and like he sees something more in him or something like he's part of the cycle and we get to see Arya and Clegane kind of come back together, which I think is really cool. It's oh, great because of it. So what do you think about that whole sequence with Beric kind of sacrificing himself, then Arya and Clegane going to King's Landing together? And then ultimately they split up and Clegane kind of saves Arya's life. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. So and Beric saying, you know, he, he's always saying like, we're here for a reason. He's always kind of instilling, trying to instill that in in uh, the Hound and his whole thing. Well, he turned out to be there to save Arya, so Arya could, you know, throw he, he throws his flaming sword into the into the undead 
to save Arya so Arya could go on and kill the Night King. So the whole thing comes full circle. I love the character of Beric. I think he's kind of Christ-like in a way. I like the impact that he had on Jon with kind of saying like the whole thing of like why we're here and why are we fighting and we're fighting for life even though we're doomed to fail against death we still have to fight that's all i know it's all about protecting the innocent i mean how can you not love him you know and then his pairing with thoros who i thought was another great character and you know the whole thing with lady little lady mormont too i love the fact we see her browbeating and lecturing uh jora for a little bit and then when the giant comes in through the gate at Winterfell and she's just kind of standing there aghast, like she's horrified, just like anybody else would be. And the giant just swats her out of the way. It's such a painful moment. She's like, oh, my God, how many fucking bones did they just break from this poor girl? And the fact that she could still lift that axe and fight and stab the giant in the eye. I mean, she took out a giant. That giant was going to do much damage. You know, thank God it was foolish enough to pick her up. I love it. And then, of course, yeah, the Hound and Arya, man. I mean, what a great pairing where they're coming. You know, the Hound's coming in. He's making a beeline for his brother. Arya's making a, a beeline for Cersei. And the Hound's like, you know, Sandor's like, if you come up here with me and you go through with this, you're not leaving here. So he saves her. You know, that whole thing, their whole journey comes full circle, their whole arc. And, you know, he's in his very salty... uh very hound like way he he saves her he and saves i like her that life. she calls him sander oh um, so good what yeah, a great moment end. you know yeah and it's not too again they don't cross over into the sentimentality where they're hugging and kissing and saying their goodbyes the characters stay in character the the show does that so well you know and it's nice to see that they're at least consistent with that through the season and speaking of we brought the hound in the mountain what did you think of their conflict i love when his helmet gets knocked off and you so finally good. get to see him Really interesting idea. I wish I knew more about the reanimation process. I, I Is this the same reanimation magic that the priestess used on? Um, what's on his John? name? I can't even think of it. Uh, no, oh, no, no, no. When, when the, the warlord is revived, uh, the Dothraki warlord is revived. Oh, right. Uh, Cal Drogo. Woman, but Cal Drogo, right. Yeah. But he's uh, but he's like kind of brain dead. Yeah. I wonder if this is like a similar situation, like the same kind of magic. They never really get into it, but I, I like his helmet getting knocked off and he, he's just kind of a, a zombie. And I like how he dispenses with Kyburn because it, it, I think Kyburn's a really cool character too. And it, it would be cool to know more about him, but the disposal of him is very game of Thrones. Cause it happens very suddenly, but it also shows that the mountain was just, didn't never cared. No. And was just like, and no. for some reason, his, the vision of his brother overrides anything anyone else is saying, including Cersei telling him to like kind of remain in his post so what did you make of that whole sequence and the end and obviously they you know they they both die oh man it's so it's so tragic you know that's the hound's thing though that's that's his quest is to exact vengeance on his brother and he's not going to stop until he gets that he's it's almost his curse you know it's his anchor to drag it's his cross to bear and it's gotta culminate in that fight that that battle, I won't say it's got to culminate in victory because I don't really think the Hound's capable of beating his brother, especially the zombified monster version of that monster, you know. But I, and I love the way it, it pans out. I love the way that Cersei's there and the mountains ignoring her. And yeah, the quick death of Kyburn, you know, very, you know, just a just another death. It's just treated like cannon fodder, like another expendable dude. You got this character 
this main character who just again they just kind of kick him to the curb and that's the horror of this world you know and the fact that the hound and that sandor and um gregor go down together and die together and just sort of fall down that pit and perish in the flames apparently it's it's a fitting end it's very poetic and you know even when the the hound is getting his eyes gouged out you know you know this character is going to stop at nothing it's tragic in a way because you want to see sandor survive he's been through a lot um he's a very tortured character you would like to see him be able to walk away and survive and have a have some sort of chance for a pleasant life after all this but i think he was doomed to they were do those brothers were doomed to go down together in that last blaze of glory in the in the book i think they explain they talk about they talk about in the show too that he stole one of his toys and that's why he burned his face yeah he does talk about that in the show at one point and right and they go into it a little bit deeper where i think the indication is that like this is insane insanely heinous like what happened to him as a kid and i think that it it's represented in the character himself. I mean, he was this. Look what happened to him. And it's it, this whole rivalry encapsulates his whole life. And it ends, I think, in a very poetic way. I, I dig the ending. I, I think he had to die. And he was lucky not to die many times before that. Sure. And yeah. I think the one shame, though, with Sander is that we we get little tastes of it, but we don't get enough of it of his of him realizing that he's insane and that like he needs to stop being a certain way. We see it when he buries the bodies that he, mm-hmm. you know, was responsible for killing earlier, but we also see it. And I think in a greater way, and I wish they spent more time with it when he's building that church and he finds that like group of religious peasants or whatever. And he's trying to just get away from this cycle and he can't escape it. And I think he realizes he has to just go right through it and end it. And, and so he does now. At the end of the show, we're left with a coterie of people. Bran, Sansa, Arya, Tyrion, Brienne, Davos, Sam, Robin, Yara, Gendry, a few others. And we find that the North will remain in an independent country, which I think is a strange move, very sudden. I mean, I understand that they're, they're independent for a long time, but one of the cool things I like about that last scene is that they, they talk a little bit about democracy and they (laughs) laugh it off and i think that that's really accurate because i don't think people quite think about it this way but it's true we live in a capitalistic society for instance but capitalism had to be invented and it's this it's the latest sequence in a sequence of of of, uh, inventions that needed to happen before it like you know money for exchange and mercantilism and all the rest democracy doesn't exist naturally it needs to be discovered and invented the greeks amongst others discovered it and invented it and, and nurtured it they're not there in their world yet. So like that doesn't even sound plausible in any way, shape or form. And I think that that's very realistic. I mean, I they just totally laugh it off. However, I do think one of the cool one of the missing sequence or one of the missing um, groups in this final sequence for me were the Brotherhood Without Banners, because the Brotherhood Without Banners is the closest we get to some sort of egalitarian nobility nobilityness. Yeah. Not part of their lives. Sure. And it would have been cool to have them have a seat at the table, too, because they are exploring that idea. Good point. But I wanted to acknowledge that that was pretty cool. And of course, we're led with Bran. The, we're left with Bran the Broken as the king. Bran, the worst character in the entire show. So that's <laughs> interesting. 
So what do you think about the the end, the so-called breaking the wheel, which I like the the term breaking the wheel. But what, what do you make of the the way it all ends? Who Who's living in the decisions they make? I like that, too. Yeah, that that whole council meeting of the surviving lords and who's left uh, the decision makers, the remaining decision makers in Westeros. It's just again, it feels so, so quick to me. It's like 45 minutes of figuring this stuff out. I do love that bit where Samwell invents democracy and they just poo poo it. You know, even the most noble amongst them, like Sansa, is like rolling her eyes, which is really a funny, a really funny bit. And because you think it's going to lead to something, it's like, oh, Sam, like Sam just hit it on the head. And they're like, fuck that. Like, what? That's crazy. Laughing. So great. And yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in that in that last scene, because a lot of these characters you forgot about. A lot of them you feel like, of course, have a place at that table. A lot of them feel like. Maybe they shouldn't be. They haven't earned that position. And maybe that's maybe that adds to the real, you know, the realistic nature of it, because you would feel that way probably about any governing body. Right. But I love the fact of, you know, Tyrion's speech about its stories that tie things together, because it seems like the show giving itself a pat on the back, which is fine. Well, deserved pat on the back, but also is Bran's story the best? They sort of foreshadow this earlier in the season when Tyrion sits down with Bran to talk to him about his story by the fire over a couple of drinks or whatever, at least for Tyrion. And they don't really show it, but then it culminates in this moment where it's like, I think Bran would be the wise choice. It left me thinking about the Bran character a lot and why he's so unappealing to you and I and a lot of people watching the show, you have this kid character, right? It's from a noble family. He's wrongfully pushed out a window and crippled. He's robbed of the use of his legs as a young boy. He's 10 or whatever he is at the time. So maybe he's, he's even eight. I'm not even sure. So you immediately feel sympathy for this kid and you want to see him. He survives and he grows up and you want to see him sort of succeed or get his just desserts or whatever. And instead, he develops or inherits this amazing precognitive magical supernatural ability to be this th- three-eyed raven. But the trade-off is that he becomes a husk and he basically loses who he is. He basically loses his humanity. And that's very tragic. And that's a really that's really good storytelling, because, again, getting away from the sentimentality and everything, it's like like, this kid kind of got robbed twice. So you should feel extra sorry for him, maybe. But instead, I think because he acts like a robot. And maybe it's just the way the actor's playing it, I'm not sure, but there's something really off putting about the character and there's something that sort of emanates from that cold personality and delivery that makes you feel in turn cold towards the character I can't even remember another instance of sort of ingesting fiction like that it doesn't usually work that way but for some reason with Bran it works that way enough for us to say I wish it wasn't him that's going to rule Westeros because even though it may be a logical fit in a way, I don't know. He's just not a very likable character to me. Yeah, it's I, I think this was probably the intention the entire time. 
And I get it. And I think that a lot of it is lost in translation because we just don't see very much a brand or, or a sufficient enough amount of brand yeah. north of the wall. Like is it, he kind of disappears for an entire season. I think season Five? six or something. Like, I don't think something he's even like in that. it. Yeah, he uh, does. So, he really does. Yeah. And so it is weird to see him come back because we don't quite have the context for his importance. But I think that that's probably going to be better delivered in the books. And this brings us to. What I have is the final question. We can talk about what anything you want that we miss. But sure. Joan Infanta, Infante wrote in and said, hi, bros. Yo, love the Game of Thrones content and all the other things. Thank you. Thank you. With the recent news that Snow, the new Game of Thrones spinoff that was recently announced. Do you think that it can be possibly improve what happened in the final season? Thank you. In peace. Thank you, Joan, for writing in. Thank you so much. So what do you want for this? This this show? There's two mm. things going on right now. There's a, some sort of tar- Targaryen prequel. Yes. And then there is some sort of snow john snow driven sequel i kind of feel like this might be essential because they have got to retcon some of this and i don't know that you can retcon the ultimate results but you need to give more texture and while you might not be able to go back and add interstitial stories you could have flashbacks or just lots of exposition that makes it feel better and so i'm not totally aghast by this idea of of going back to the well and doing a sequel because I think it might be necessary to clean some of this shit up and give them a way out of some of this stuff as well. So I'm kind of intrigued by it, especially because obviously they get all the people back. And we know, I mean, these actors aren't that much older. And I'm sure that most of them, not all of them, would be thrilled to go back and do more Game of Thrones. So I don't think there's going to be any other uh, problem other than having the creative fortitude to see it through and, and make it right. Because a lot of people asked us too, Dave, like, how would we have changed everything? And it's like, I wouldn't change anything. This is so... Ultimately, it's so complicated and so above my my understanding as a creator and a fiction writer and all the rest that it's like, I don't it's even a lot. deign to tell you how to how to <laughs> rewrite so this thing. But but I will say that I think we need more and I think they can clean it up in a, in a sequel. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we all know you have these beloved things. We love Game of Thrones. We love these characters. It's so dangerous to want for something. But I am really pleased that they're going to continue it because I do think it gives us some opportunities to see not only revisit this world that we love and this main character who we really care about and Jon Snow, but there's a lot of people, as you said earlier, Kyle, who survive. You know, we're almost certainly going to see Sansa. We would almost certainly see Tormund, Tyrion. Jon Snow and Tyrion have that great friendship. See Peter Dinklage return as Tyrion would be an amazing opportunity. And these other players, you know, we have Bronn, we have Samwell, we have Yara, we have... We have so we have Davos. We have all these wonderful characters we could just go back to. It, it, I I am excited. I'm excited, but you know I get excited for things like Obi Wan Kenobi too, and then I'm ultimately let, ultimately let down. And just uh, no spoilers for Obi Wan whatsoever. I, I was really nonplussed with it. It wasn't that it was terrible. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't wonderful. It was just kind of fell flat somewhere in the middle where it kind of leaves you. With that feeling of why, why, why even bother? You only get one shot at this. You only get one shot at this connective tissue between these two already established parts of Star Wars. So let's really like bear down and like make this amazing. I know it's kind of time is of the essence because especially because you and McGregor and Hayden Christensen are both in that wheelhouse age wise. But you know what I mean? It's like, really, let's make the time to make this thing great. And sometimes things just catch magic and it's lightning in a bottle and it's great in spite of itself. But why not bear down and just really make the effort 
to make it wonderful. So that's what I'm really hoping they do with this. Less so with the House of the Dragon prequel, but more so with the Snow sequel, where it's like, mm. we're really invested in these characters. And a lot of people are not pleased with how it ended, which more the more we converse about it seems silly. But, you know, now we have a, a chance to really revisit this world in a, in a really memorable way. So let's go for it. You know. Is there anything else you want to add, Dave, before we wrap it up? You know, I have one wild take. Something that I was bothering me for a while, and then I realized, you know what? This is really a problem for me. And that's riding on the dragons. I don't like it. I don't like riding on the backs of the dragons. Yeah, I don't either. There's some, think, right? I, There's I, something I cheesy about it. Totally. Right? We came, well, especially John being able to ride yes. makes no sense. Like, these are unbelievable things. Like air travel is not even a thing in their in their world. So it's not like you can imagine. It's just insanity. I I don't hate the idea of 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 the dragon queen riding her dragons, but it should be like her. That's like what she does. Or sure, whatever, at the very most. Something just, cool. She's got a little. To her credit, she's yeah. got a little bit of a George Washington going on. She does fight. Uh, some of these some leaders don't fight. Yes, she definitely does. It, it, it it's a lot like. Uh, Stannis like they fight yes and so to her credit she does that's well said own. yeah yeah that and at, to, at much danger which they plead with her not to do because if she's taken out all is lost and that doesn't stop her from going out so I do I do agree with you on that I like that part John riding the dragon I could see them saying like that's his Targaryen blood that's his secret Targaryen blood only he could do that because he's part Targaryen there's something really interesting about the character of Jon Snow, too, and seeing more of him because he has that Targaryen blood, but it's tempered with the Stark blood. So he's probably not going to be saddled with that propensity for madness, right? Because he's got that Stark in there to sort of calm that side down. So I do like the character of Jon Snow after we find out who he really is and now seeing him in action as that half Targaryen, half uh, Stark leader would be really cool but the dragon thing i'm just thinking we come up in this world of like really cool 80s and 90s dungeons and dragons final fantasy really lord of the rings really great fantasy right and we love the things of the the characters who could summon monsters and stuff i'd rather see it something like that or where there's maybe some sort of psychokinetic mind energy between right between the dragon master and the dragon where she's kind of wielding it like a weapon from the ground. Maybe she's on horseback. Maybe she's behind enemy lines or whatever. Maybe she doesn't even have to be there. Maybe it's just some sort of psychokinetic. You know, like Bran has the connection. warg thing. Right. Exactly. Could be, she could oh, have yeah. warged with the dragon. Oh, yeah. I like that. Straight up warging. Maybe that's just the only, the only creature she can get inside is the, oh, is the dragon. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I agree with you. I think it's I don't think it necessarily looks very good either. The compositing is really bad in some of those shots. I think that they I think I said this in the last episode. They introduced these elements where they could have had some practical Jurassic Park like effect. Yeah. With some like the dragon head petting it and dealing with it. And sure. I think that it was kind of a wasted thing. Although I do say when the, the when the, the Iron Fleet kills that second dragon, it's pretty brutal to watch like it gets oh, in his chest and it looks down and then it just goes right through it's like head or it's neck I'm dude, like, oh my god dude. that was insane like, you feel sad for like they're animals they're they're pretty vicious animals too but um 
and Drogon is still alive. So yeah, he, and he destroys see the Iron Throne back. and bounces. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like I like how they mentioned like where is he and like no one has seen him or whatever. So there is potential. Like I think that they're playing around with this understanding that they need to go back and fix some of this, and I think that they'll be able to do it with a sequel. I think they could. Series. Yeah, I yeah. think so too. And you know, I just lastly, Kyle, I have to give a shout out to the moment where Drogon is the one to melt the Iron Throne. Right, all these humans. The one with the wisdom is this unruly creature who has the intelligence to actually get rid of this symbol. I love the fact in those last moments it plays up the intelligence of the dragons because you're like, oh, I didn't know they were capable of that sort of thinking. You know, they know who people are and alliances and they know who to protect it, but you don't know it's like that. So that kind of raises the bar for a dragon going out which I thought was a really cool moment. I mean, it was really one of my favorite moments in the show because you think John is fucked. You know, he basically kills Danny, right? He murders her after the kiss and you hear Drogon come, coming up and you're like, oh, fuck, he's fucked. Like, he's totally dead. And here's this dragon. He sort of has the standoff with John that just melts the Iron Throne and flies away with Danny. Really good shit. That, I gotta get yeah, a he, nod to He, he like understood that. that it was necessary, I think, in fact. I mean, because... Like I don't really this. know what Drogon's perspective is, but he lost both of his brothers. He's the last dragon now. There you go. And so he saw that this madness cost them, you know, some, he probably cared about them or something, you know? And, yeah, it's and enough. All that, so. This is enough now. Right. This, this, oh, I'm, I'm ending this. This is not, no longer a thing. So that was cool. And, that, you know, that, that was a moment that I really remembered. It was funny how much I didn't remember going into this. It was like watching it new for the first time. Again, only seeing it once. The season, uh, season eight specifically. But... It was so, you know, I, I, I come away really not minding the ending too much. John going to the wall, fine. Danny dead, fine. Tear, the people who lived, I'm totally fine with. Um, it might, you know, again, it would have been cool to see Jamie survive only so you could see that character because you're sentimentally, you're wanting to see that character become good, but it's good to leave it there. That's good writing. You know what I mean? Let him be beholden to his doom. You know, so I, um, I'm very, I'm not unhappy. It's just the brand character. That's kind of been a, um, that's been something you and I have been dealing with for this whole ride. And a lot of people have, and we're going to be forced to deal with them now in the snow. We're going to see him, right? We're going to totally. see him. We have to see him. So he's coming back, but otherwise I'm, it's, it's amazing. I, I mean, I'm not retconning season eight, but it's not. It's really not even half as bad as people remember. It's really not. You know, no, what it's, I, mean? I, agree, I agree with you. I think that. Again, it's the it's the compliment being paid to it that it is in no way as good as the way it began or it was in no. the middle. It, it's just no way. No. And, and that is a fall worth noting. I mean, it's it sucks. Yeah. And so I don't know. I think on its own, it's fine. I think it's watchable. I enjoyed it. But you, ex your expectations are through the roof by this point in the show. And in my opinion, they're not met. That's a great but, way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, it deserved better. It's not bad, but it did deserve better when you look at it. What it could have been, its trajectory over the seasons. And it is one of those shows that just got incrementally worse as it went, which is not a rhythm you want to develop. It's not a cadence you want in the show. Can't think of another show like that, really where it just definitely decisively got worse every, you know, pretty much every season. But yeah, but hey, man, we did it. We, we did. We're done. We're done. 
one through eight. Done. It's I was just looking at all the episodes. Every, I don't think I think the shortest one is about, about two hours even. So I think the longest one is two hours and 45 minutes. So, yeah, we've got about 18, 19 hours, something like that wow. on Game of Thrones. So there's a lot of content for you guys to enjoy. Not if you'd bad. like. Thank you guys for being here with us and um, patiently waiting for these episodes to be done. If you're not, you know, so if you're not into Game of Thrones, you're obviously looking at this as opportunity <laughs> costs. So we understand we're going to give it a little bit of a rest with TV for a couple months, but we'll be back oh, with yeah. more TV episodes in August. I think we're going to begin again with a good with a new show. And uh, in the meantime, we'll obviously fill in all the, the different gaps we have developed with games and movies and all the rest over time. So um, thank you for your love, kindness and support. Appreciate you, Dig. Um, let's end with a dad joke, as we always do. Let's do it, my friend. Carl. Did you hear about the claustrophobic astronaut? He just wanted a bit more space. Oh. Oh, astronauts. Uh, that was all right. <laughs> I have a shirt with an astronaut that, on it that says I need more space. So I, I, oh, you do? Feel like, feel, yeah, I feel like we've been there before. <laughs> we've done that. We've been down that road. Yeah, no doubt. But good try. <laughs> Nonetheless, well, Dave, thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Thank you. It was um, fun. It was fun. And thank you all out there for your love, kindness and support of all things Knockback and Last Stand Media. If you listen to us on free feeds, please do leave us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. You can follow us on YouTube if you want to watch the video like some of you do. And of course, get early ad free access to every episode. Submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas. Vote on topic ideas. Submit your topic ideas and the rest at Patreon.com slash Last Stand Media. We'll see you next time. Until then. Goodbye. <laughs> what is dead may never die. Yeah. <laughs> Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Casual Misfits Gaming, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knox, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Reed, Benjamin Mumma, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez Espinoza, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Hallen Rui, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parides, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H. Tronge, JT, Antonio C., Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Andrew Morgan, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, of Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex LaPierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Flowers, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Bustard, Rodney Coleman, Cruxes, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, D.B. Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algorit, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Moran. 
Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Anton Kay, Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondoliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Andrew, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Carper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.